All right. So let's go to Judges chapter 15. And we will once again be reading the entire chapter, so all of chapter 15. And I'm just going to start in verse 1. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught three hundred foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as to the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etim. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson to do him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft rock of Etim, and they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. Then they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes were on his arms. They became his flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off of his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put it in his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey I have struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and at that place was called Ramath Lehi. Then, or sorry, and he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and waters came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. And therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. This study uh, that we're going to do in chapter 15 is titled Samson's Continued Victories. And you notice that unlike last time where there's one dominant story that we're told in chapter 13, or sorry, in chapter 14, here we have kind of a mix of two separate, uh, let's say, events or um, situations that occur in the life of Samson. 
And it's unclear, at least initially, whether these occur shortly after one another or whether they occur with some time in between or whether it's days apart. Um, the big time jump is uh, from verse uh, 8 and then uh, into verse 9. Uh, and it's not necessarily clear how long that time elapses. But nevertheless, uh, we're told at the end of this section that all of these events and happenings are, let's say, a representative sample of Samson's judgment for 20 years over Israel when they were under the leadership or the rulership of the Philistines. And that's given to us in verse 20 of chapter 15. So then in this section, well, you know, in chapter 14, we were introduced to let's say, what Samson is like, maybe what his weaknesses are, and what his vengeance is like. In chapter 15, we get, let's say, a representative sample of Samson's uh, deliverances and judgments of the Philistines uh, to deliver the Israelites. And then that story is going to kind of come to a close in uh, chapter 16, uh, when we get to see more and more about Samson's exploited weaknesses that we were introduced to earlier in chapter 14. So chapter 15 is, let's say, uh, a great representation of what Samson is like during this 20-year period of him ruling and reigning. Now, the first thing that we're told about his victories over the Philistines is all of them are kind of like him and the Philistines trading blows with one another. So the first thing that you notice in chapter 14 is it seems that the Philistines have got the upper hand on him when they conquer him with the riddle. And then it seems that they've lost the upper hand when he uh, kills 30 of their kinsmen to pay for uh, the, the price or the, the wager that was, that was cast. In this section, you have the same kind of narrative structure where it seems that the Philistines gain the upper hand on Samson, and then Samson gains the upper hand on them. And you have this kind of interplay the whole time in Samson's life. You notice this first off when Samson goes back up to visit uh, the woman who he was betrothed to. Here the text, it tells us explicitly that it was his wife. And this is not Samson thinking it was his wife. Uh, under Philistine culture and uh, Israelite culture, this would have been considered his wife, although they had not yet consummated their marriage in the full ceremony. Uh, so he goes to her, uh, and this time he comes with a young goat. That's more than likely, let's say, a peace offering of some kind. Um, they don't have, let's say, roses and flowers and things like that in Israel. So he's coming, you know, I, I might have lost my cool. I'm coming back, you know, please take this young goat as a peace offering. We'll have a meal together and then all things will be fine again. And he says, I will go to my wife in the chamber. Uh, he's, he's considering it that he is indeed wed to her and that, you know, she's still his and she's you know, kind of waiting for him uh, in this time when he is, you know, cooled off. And the response of her father is rather striking. It says, but her father would not allow him to go in. And the reason that we're given in the text is that he says, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And as a reader, this, this uh, development is not a surprise to us because at the end of her, chapter 14, we were told that Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. And here, uh, where Samson is, let's say, caught up to speed on the information that we already knew about, and Samson does not take favorably to this news. He, he reacts similarly to finding out that they had, uh, as he says, plowed with his heifer, uh, he's going to be enraged, uh, and then he, this is going to lead to him somehow trading blows once again to the Philistines. So he now finds out about a blow that was dealt to him, namely his wife married off to uh, his best man, uh, his best man probably not being an Israelite, likely being a Philistine. And there's something uh, a little bit implicit in the text, which is that this is not something that would have been commonly done. So the question is, well, why did Samson's, or th this father-in-law do this to Samson? What, what is the motivation behind it? And some speculation would say because the Philistines were rulers over the Israelites, they kind of didn't consider the Israelites to be very much. And so he, he really didn't have much of a problem treating Samson in this way. 
And Samson takes it as it was intended, which is it's, it's kind of a slap on his reputation. And Samson probably being well known in Israel, either from his birth prophecy or from many other things, is someone who very quickly is going to become well known to the Philistines because whatever they do to him is kind of in his mind seen as a slight on the whole nation of Israel. So he doesn't just respond and retort to um, uh, his father-in-law and then the wife and then the, kin, the person who married his wife. Um, but instead, he's going to respond and essentially attack all of the, the fields of this near region of the Philistines. So he's treating it in some sense like the Philistine people did this disservice to him. He's, he's kind of broadening the scope of the judgment. And what's interesting in the father's logic before we get to Samson's retaliation um, is that his, his logic or his reasoning, uh, if, you'll, if you'll pay attention to it, it's not like very well thought out. Um, it's partially like he's bartering. You know, he's, he's realizing he's been caught. He's realizing Samson's probably going to be upset about what just happened. Samson, remember, to his knowledge, has killed 30 people and delivered their clothes to these other Philistines. So this is a powerful person he's dealing with. Certainly he can handle one father-in-law. And so he's bartering now. He's like saying, well, look at the younger daughter. Isn't she more beautiful? We, we can't necessarily believe him when he says that she is more beautiful because he's, he's likely just bartering. He's likely just trying to do whatever he can to save himself. And Samson isn't fooled because the heart of the issue is that his wife, the one who he wanted to be betrothed to, the one who was right in his eyes, was the one who was married off to someone else. And so Samson says to them, uh, Samson says to his father, this time I will be innocent in regards to the Philistines when I do them harm. And so then we're, we're told this interesting story where he takes 300 foxes and he takes torches. He turns the foxes tail to tail, ties the torches in between their tails, and then he essentially sets them loose in the field. And the burn of this is in the field that he set them on. And it kind of seems like they're surrounding damage as well. Because we're told that he sets fire to the torches. He lets the foxes go in the standing grain. Uh, but not only does he set fire to the standing grain, he also sets fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchard. So it seems that these foxes <laughs> with their tails on fire kind of ran in all different directions. Now, there's a few things that are surprising about this narrative. And things that, you know, as readers, you know, we're so far removed from it, this we kind of go, you know, no big deal. Firstly, Samson caught 300 foxes. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty surprising thing. So, and it's not necessarily like we're told that he does this in a short span of time. So it is likely that between him finding out that his wife was married off to someone else and his retaliation, that he kind of carefully plotted this. You know, catching 300 foxes is quite a feat. And so it's likely that he, for maybe days or weeks or months, months, he accumulated foxes to himself and then sets this plan into motion, right? And so uh, not only that, but he does it from the time of the start of the wheat harvest to the end of the wheat harvest. So we know not a ton of time has elapsed. So it's still him thinking rashly, right? But nevertheless, he catches these foxes, puts torch to them. And essentially, you know, we're told it's the time of the wheat harvest. He burns up not only the grain that has not yet been harvested, but also the grain that has been stacked, meaning the grain that has already been harvested, and their olive orchards as well. So he's destroyed and it's, it, this is lost on us because we are not an agricultural people, but he essentially destroyed their entire livelihood and their sustenance for this coming year. And so the Philistines are not going to be happy when they find out what happened. And now we see uh, an element of irony in this story that uh, was kind of introduced to us in chapter 14. The first thing that you notice is when the Philistines find out what happened, they say, who's done this? They find out it's Samson. And then they identify Samson with this Timnite who uh, betrayed Samson or handed it over. And then what initially they promised to do to the wife when she wouldn't tell them the riddle is exactly what happens to her and to her father uh, when, they, when Samson retaliates on them for having given his, his bride away. They take him uh, and they say, because he took his wife and gave it to her companion, the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. 
Now there's something interesting here, which is that the Philistines actually did not have a problem with the Timnite having given this woman up to the companion. If they did, they would have taken issue with it when it happened. They had an issue with the fact that blame could have been put anywhere, you know, on the Philistine people, on the Timnite, and they decide, you know, it's a convenient, uh, let's say, retaliation. We can't really lash out against Samson right now because he just proved, you know, two different times that he can out, outgun us. So let's, let's beat someone who we can beat. And we're going to take this out on the Timnite uh, and his daughter. So they burn her and her father with fire, which is what she was trying to avoid earlier by causing this ruckus to begin with. So in, in a sense, the Philistines are making a fool of themselves and everyone's kind of getting something that they tried to avoid by committing sin of some kind. And then the Philistines come up, they burn her with fire. And Samson says to them, so now Samson is again, uh, it seems that a blow has been dealt to him because his wife and her father-in-law have now been struck. And then he says, if this is what you want to do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. So he's basically saying, all he's trying to do against the Philistines is draw even. Um, now that's uh, not necessarily a commentary on justice or anything like that, but he, well, all he's trying to do in his mind is deal an equal uh, blow with them that, from what they dealt with him. And so uh, then he goes and it says that the verse, uh, verse eight of chapter 15 says, and he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Now we're not told exactly what it means for him to strike them hip and thigh with a great blow. But if the 300 foxes was, let's say, a description of what a great blow might be like, then uh, striking them hip and thigh with a great blow is, let's say, an, an elevation or uh, a commentary on a greater kind of uh, blow that's been done to the Philistine people. And it says, essentially, true to his word, uh, at, the end of, at the end of verse 8, and then he's going to go and stay in the Rock of Edom. So he's, he's now done his justice, and he's coming back. And he's just going to kind of hang out and eat them. He's not going back to where he's from. He's not going to stay with the Philistines. He's kind of dwelling in this neutral territory. And then that brings us to the second episode that unfolds in this text, uh, which starts in verse 9. And it's some period after the wheat harvest. And it says in verse 9, Then the Philistines came up and camped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. Now this introduces to us the Philistines trying to probably make up for the fact that they just lost all of their grain and all of their wheat. And so they're going to retaliate by lording over the Israelites, which is the people they lord over. So they go up and now against Judah and they make a raid. And the men of Judah, instead of standing up for themselves uh, and fighting, like the people, you know, remember chapter one of the book of Judges, these are the people who are supposed to go in and conquer the promised land. Now these people are being raided by people who are in the promised land and they don't, they don't take up arms against them. They don't fight them. What do they say? Why have you come up against us? Um, and they say, we've come to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. And then the 3,000 men of Judah essentially join the Philistines in coming to go get Samson. So, and their reasoning is very interesting. And we're told it uh, in verse um, uh, verse 11 towards the end there. Uh, they go to Samson to eat him and they say to him, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Now, if you've read from Genesis to this point in your Bible, uh, one of the things that you ha will have picked up on is in the story of Exodus in the opening chapters, this same kind of interaction happens between Moses and the Israelite people when the Philistines are their lords. So Moses goes to deliver the Israelites. What happens is he initially approaches Pharaoh, says, let the people go. And the Pharaoh says, oh, these people have too much free time on their hands. Uh, they'll have to make the same amount of bricks with less resources provided to them. And then the Israelites turn and they don't take it out on Pharaoh because Pharaoh is their lord. They come to Moses and they say, leave us alone. Don't you know the Philistines are our rulers? Leave us alone. What hardship you have caused us, right? And the men of Judah, supposedly the chief tribe of the people of Israel, have gone from 
chapter one of the book of Judges being the people who are conquering the promised land, right? They're like leading the charge. And now they're a small band trying to get Samson essentially to appease the, uh, the Philistines. And so you have this kind of distortion in the text. Um, what, a pattern that's expected, which is Judah being a conquering people, is now a reversed pattern. And now Judah is essentially a weakling hitman for the lords of Israel. Now there's something else interesting in that language. They call the Philistines their rulers or their masters that are, that are over them. And one commentator observes that the Israelites are seemingly more loyal to the Philistines as their Lord than they were to God as their Lord. So consider, you know, where the Israelites go sideways. One of the things that happens is some Israelites individually have to engage in sin. And when that happens, you know, presumably no one does anything about it because they get away with it for some period of time. And now generations go by and they're caught in sin. The, what Judah does here to Samson saying, stop disturbing the Philistines, they're our lords, is what the Israelites in general should have done when any one Israelite stepped out of line from the covenant. They should have said, don't disobey God. He is our Lord. Now come and obey him. But instead of that, they prove themselves to be man-fearers and fearers of these, these people as opposed to fearing God as they should have. And so they've essentially, they've, they've become this kind of neutered people. It's kind of the picture that's being painted. So they're more obedient to the Philistines than they were ever to God. And they seem to be like almost fighting for that loyalty up to the point where the judge that God has raised up for them is someone who they want to turn over to the Philistines, which is really interesting because Samson, you know, when you get his birth narrative, you're like, oh, he's going to lead the people. The people are going to join in him. They're going to rally cry. It's the same kind of expectation you have with Moses when he comes into uh, the people of Israel when they're in Egypt. You expect Moses is going to come. He's going to say God sent him. He's going to do these wonderful signs. And everyone's just going to join him in this charge against Pharaoh. And really, it takes both persuading of the Pharaoh and the people that they need saving. In the same way here, Samson uh, is kind of dueling, doing battle with the Israelites to persuade them of being delivered from the Philistines. And uh, the Philistines need to be beaten as well. And so in this, uh, they say, what have you done to us? Interesting question. And then he says to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. So he's, he's pleading his case. He's saying, I've only done to them. I've only committed crimes against them that they've instigated against me. And if we look at the story of Samson, while you could argue, let's say, the harshness of his punishment, in truth, he's only really retaliated against the Philistines when they've done something against him. So if you, if you go back early, he's actually willing to marry into their people. Then they, uh, they cheat him in the riddle. Then they uh, give his wife away. Then they burn his wife. So there's a lot of things happening. And Samson, in every instance, is basically retaliatory against the Philistines. So he's not instigating anything here. And now the Philistines want vengeance again on him. And so he, he makes the people make a promise to him. He says to them, or they say to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give that you into the hands of the Philistines. And he says to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and then give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. And so they're not expecting Samson to come peaceably as evidenced by the fact that 3000 people came to capture Samson. Um, so they're not expecting this kind of, let's say, peace from Samson. And Samson says to them, tell me that you will not attack me yourselves. They say, no, we'll only bind you and then give you into their hands. Now, this is something that is anticipated in the story of Samson. And pay attention to it for later in chapter 16. When Samson's bound, uh, he's strong by the spirit of God. And so the chains don't, uh, don't stay on him. And so him, him probably having knowledge of his own strength and knowledge that um, this is uh, something he can use against the Philistines um, is something that he's now playing off of. Now, the men of Judah don't seem to be in on this. So we cannot say they're in on this scheme and they're, they're really playing along. It seems that they're guilty of just basically being the puppets of the Philistines. And so they, but, but they're so cowardly, they won't even kill Samson themselves. They'll say, no, we'll just deliver you into the hands of the Philistines. 
we won't kill you ourselves. So they bind him with two new ropes and they bring him up from the rock. And then he comes to Lehi, which is where the Philistines initially were making raid against Judah. So the Philistines don't even go up themselves to get Samson. They just send Judah out to get him. So he, they're doing all of the dirty work for them. Then they come. Uh, they bring him back. The Philistines came shouting to meet them, right, considering it victorious that they've captured Samson. And then uh, we're told a familiar phrase, at least uh, so far, the spirit of the Lord now rushes upon him and we're expecting then a, a mighty victory. And that's what we get. The ropes were uh, in his arms became as flax that has caught fire. Basically, they just dissolve right in front of him. He just rips through them. His bonds melted off on his hands and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. So he's, he didn't bring him weapons to the fight. He didn't have a sword. He didn't grab one off a Philistine. He just grabs literally something laying on the ground, probably another carcass. Um, and then he finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey and he puts it to his hand and he took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. So if you thought about how hard it is to catch 300 foxes in effort to, you know, do your revenge. Now, in, in let's say one narrative battle sequence of events, it's not like he's taking a break and coming back. He kills a thousand people. And then uh, Samson, and now this is supposed to be a poem. When you translate it from Hebrew to English, it doesn't quite rhyme or make any sense. But uh, he essentially says um, a, victory, a song of victory, a short little poem. Um, and it goes, uh, the jaw of a dog, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. And with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. Now, there's some uh, people who try to translate this and make it rhyme in English. It just, it doesn't really work. But um, trust me, Samson is a little bit of a poet. And we saw that earlier with the riddle that he kind of laid out. And then in verse 17, it says, Now, as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and he names the place. And now it says Ramath-Lehi, or some of your translations might actually give it the true name. But Ramath-Lehi means hill of the jawbone. So he's named it after his victory over the Philistines. And then something very interesting happens in verse 18. He gets thirsty. He realizes his thirst, this probably after having fought all these people, you know, a thousand men, he's probably tired, very thirsty. And then he said, he calls out to the Lord and says, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst in the hands of the uncircumcised? Now, this could be Samson calling out in a prayer of faith. It could be the text alluding the fact, similarly to the Israelites, when they're led out of captivity with, um, with Egypt, uh, and they're led out safely from the Pharaoh, then they get out in the wilderness and they say, have you brought us just here to die, Moses, right? Now Samson is becoming kind of like the people in that he's got this great victory by the jawbone of a donkey, and now he's saying, I'm gonna die of thirst, and essentially calling out to God for help. And God splits open the rock, or the hollow place, that's at Lehi, and water comes out from it, very similar to how God delivers the Israelites in that same situation in the wilderness when they're thirsty. Samson drinks, his spirit returns to him. And now what's interesting is after God rescues Samson in this moment, uh, even though he had technically rescued him earlier as well by delivering his spirit on Samson, here Samson actually recognizes the rescue of God and he names the place En Hakore, which means the spring of him who called. So God who calls down water, God who saves Samson, Samson's essentially attributing the name of this place. He names it essentially twice in a, in a matter of sentences. He calls it first the jawbone of uh, the hill of the jawbone, and now the place where I was saved from God, or saved by God. And they, the text specifies that this is still at Lehi to this day. And then the concluding remark of the author of Judges is, and this is a representative sample of Samson judging Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. So between these events that we're told and the next event that we're going to see in chapter 16, we're kind of told that this is kind of how Samson's judging goes. There's, unlike the other judges, there's no peace in the land, there's no ultimate victory over the Philistines. It's just kind of like, and this is how it is for 20 years, uh, which is interesting if you think about this only happening over the matter of you know a couple of months. How how much could have transpired in the course of 20 years with Samson, you know, 
maybe trying to marry someone, you know, these events are not atypical it's seemingly in Samson's life as evidenced by what we'll see in chapter 16. And so it is, it is quite interesting to see how Samson, uh, or imagine or speculate how Samson could have conducted his business for 20 years of judging Israel. Now there's one more thing to say about this text uh, before we get into some discussion. And that is something that we already visited earlier, which is up in verse uh, 13, where Samson makes the, the statement where he tells the Israelites, swear to me, you won't attack me yourselves. They say, no, we'll just bind you and then we'll deliver you into the hands of the Philistines. And one thing I mentioned earlier in the story of Samson is the author is kind of laying out a pattern for us. He gets this birth narrative. He gets, he gets kind of this uh, rescue or savior judge over Israel kind of motif in his life. And this is interesting because this, patter, this uh, pattern here of him being delivered over into the hands of the Philistines is interesting. Not only that, but he's delivered by the Israelites into the hands of the Philistines, and he's supposed to be their, their judge or their ruler. Now, this is picked up on by all of the gospel writers when they explicitly mention in the narrative of Jesus being delivered over into the hands of the, uh, the Roman soldiers that he gets delivered over. It's not that the Romans go out and catch him and bring him in. It's that his own disciple and his people are the ones who betray him into the hands of the Romans. And they don't kill him themselves, but they do ensure that he's essentially handed over to be killed. And so that's interesting uh, that, the, that this is something that gets picked up on essentially in Judges. And this imagery is, you always have to ask the question, why does an author mention something? Why do they include it in the text? Why is it preserved? And why might a later author pick up on that same idea? And it's interesting that all of the Gospels make mention of that same thing. And here in Judges, we get mention of uh, the Israelites themselves won't, won't touch him, but they're going to deliver him into the hands of people who they know will kill him. And that makes them guilty, right? As, as Paul tells in the New Testament that it is the people of Israel who bear the blood of their Savior on their hands because they killed him by the hands of lawless men. And so we're not to understand that the, Judah, the people of Judah here are innocent in delivering Samson over. They're just as complicit in the murder as, as anyone is who's going to carry it out. Now, by God's grace uh, and his saving of Samson, they're not guilty of murder. They're just cowards. Um, but at the end of the day, there is this kind of pattern that gets laid forward in the text that's picked up on uh, in the Gospels as well. Uh, so with that, I'll just close in prayer and then we can get into some discussion. Father God, we thank you so much for uh, your word and um, how it's been preserved for all these years, uh, how it's profitable for us. Lord, we pray as we enter now into uh, some discussion, some uh, thinking things out and, um, and asking questions that you would guard our hearts and minds, help us to... Um, cast aside, you know, the responsibilities of the week and the coming days, and also uh, just focus up for this moment uh, to um, search our hearts, uh, to apply our minds, that we would be uh, faithful disciples of your word, and we would uh, learn in some way to serve you and love you and uh, uh, be more obedient to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.